Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with us another Thursday evening where we are reflecting into the very rich topic of theology of the body. Specifically, we are reflecting upon Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies. And uh, I'm excited tonight because uh, I have Ivan Mora back with me. Uh, If you are a faithful listener to this program, you know uh, Ivan Mora. He was with me for the uh, 12-slash-13-part series, if you include Dr. Gretchen March's program in that series, on Theology of the Body and a kind of introduction to Theology of the Body. So he's back uh, tonight. And I also have Chris Seibert with me, who's joined me for a few programs as we've discussed the love that satisfies. So, Ivan, great to have you with me. Great to be back. And Chris, great to have you with me as well. All right. It's it's good to be here and to make a new friend in the theology of the body world. <laughs> and Ivan. Yeah, well, and, you know, let's start there, uh, Chris, before we came on air. Uh, you guys were kind of talking a little bit about, you know, how were you introduced to theology of the body, and uh, it kind of struck me a little bit. So I think our listening audience out there might be interested to know how uh, the both of you came into first contact uh, with Theology of the Body. So I don't know, Chris, if you want to start. Sure. Uh, I think it was about 2001, maybe 2002. uh, Father Chuck Kelly, who was the pastor at our parish in Esparto when we were in the little town of Esparto, um, he handed me a uh, cassette tape version of Naked Without Shame. uh, And I was kind of taken aback even by the the title, but I thought, okay, I'll take a look at this. And... Uh, he wanted my wife, Roberta, and I to lead a, a marriage group, and he said, just listen to this, and you'll be ready. Mm. So I started listening uh, and literally had scales fall off my eyes uh, a dozen times as I listened the first time through. And then as I moved up to Chico again and continued to teach in Esparto, it's about an hour and a half drive, I probably listened to the tape series about three times all the way through. It was pretty lengthy. And there were times, I mentioned this to you earlier, Ivan and Joe, that I literally had to pull off the Hmm. freeway because it was like these explosions of grace and understanding would hit and I would have to stop just to digest it all because it came at me, you know, fast and furious and it was so deep and rich that um, I was really, you know, to use an overused phrase, I was blown away by it Hmm. uh, many a time. And then I, when I got to Notre Dame a few years later, Notre Dame School here in Chico, I wanted to be able to introduce it uh, to the uh, to the eighth graders at, at the school. Um, so I taught it for a couple of years when I was the principal. I would just be a guest lecturer, if you will, and I would go in and we would talk theology of the body. And since I've been back in the classroom, it has been a staple for family life and learning of the beauty of our human sexuality that has been our program, and it's now they've even got a program for middle school kids, not mm-hmm. just high school, but theology of the body for middle school, and that has been a tremendous blessing for for me, for the students, and for the school. Isn't it interesting how grace works? As you're sharing there, Chris, the one thing that strikes me is, you know, okay, the truth of theology of the body that we've been talking about now for a good, you know, three and a half, four months, how it just touches you, how it grips you, and you want to share it. 
Yes. You know, Ivan, I think the last time you were with me, we were talking about theology of the body and how it relates to the new evangelization. Well, the new evangelization is always under the operation and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is the Holy Spirit moves us, the Holy Spirit touches us in a deep and profound way, so much so that we have to pull off to the side of the road. <laughs> and then we don't find... want to get in an accident. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get pulled over by a cop. What are you doing? Well, I'm studying theology of the body, right? Doesn't everybody? <laughs> yeah. 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 But the new evangelization is about all peoples, right? We're evangelizing cops. Right. Um, yes. So, yeah, it touches us at such a deep level that we have to pull off to the side. And, and then we want to share it. So, okay, you know, Chris, you're a principal, you're at a Catholic uh, grade school, Notre Dame, K-8, you're going to take every opportunity that you have now to share the richness and the beauty of this great topic of theology of the body. And again, that's evangelization. That's how the Holy Spirit works. You know, it touches one person, and now that one person is going to share it. And, and so I think, what, Ivan, you had a similar experience, huh? Yeah, and it's funny how you said that the title shocked you a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, Naked Without Shame. Mm -hmm. Well, I discovered Theology of the Body during my first year in college. I was going to Mass on a Sunday, and I saw this poster that said, God, Sex, and the Meaning of Life. Yeah. And as a college student, that's going to get your attention. Mm -hmm. God, Sex, and the Meaning of Life. This must be good. And so I came, and it was a five-day conference by a speaker. His name is um, Damon Owens, mm -hmm. and he's right now the president of the Theology of the Body Institute in mm -hmm. Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you said that something like just catch you something just moved you well same thing happened to me as soon as i entered and i heard the first first talk it resonated with something that was already in my heart i remember just feeling so good about mm -hmm. what he was saying and he just made a lot of sense yeah and what a great time to have that revealed to you you're a freshman in college one of the things joe that i thought about as i was uh just it was resonating with me was gosh i wish i had this when i was a senior mm -hmm. in high school yeah yeah. Might have, might, you know, I, I would have had a different experience, you mm -hmm. know, and a, and a more whole uh, early adulthood years. And at that time, all you're thinking, hey, well, my church is so old fashioned. Right. They, they just teach you all the stories about like snakes and fruits. <laughs> they don't know anything. Yeah. But the moment you hit that tell you the body talk, you realize, mm -hmm. wow, mm -hmm. <laughs> what I know is on the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I right. had no idea. I, I, I even doubted whether Damon always was Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Was, right. <laughs> right. Are you Catholic? Because yeah. I went to catechism. I went to a Catholic school. I've never heard this stuff yeah. before. Yeah. And then I realized, yes, but I never got deep into it. Yeah. You know, we've talked about Christopher West. We've talked about Theology of the Body Institute. You know, where did this start? Well, you have to go back to the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C., where essentially a, a collection of professors uh, came together and they started teaching uh, just not theology of the body, but John Paul II's vision of of man collectively, and certainly theology of the body was at the heart of that. And Christopher West, you know, a student there ultimately, uh, who now teaches there as an adjunct professor, has become kind of the the keynote figure, along with figures like Damon Owens and others. More personally, my first contact was was in the classroom, and, and like the both of you, I, I was deeply touched. Although I was having to study it to get a good grade, so I think it impacted me in a different way. But uh, Looking back now, though, I'm made to reflect upon one particular uh, day inside the classroom and why it impacted me. It was the professor talking about what inspired John Paul II to reflect upon God's sex and the meaning of man. And it was him reflecting upon, that is, then Carol Wojtyla, who we now know as St. John Paul the Great, right? Then Carol Wojtyla, young Carol Wojtyla, reflecting upon the meaning of man with Auschwitz as his backdrop, mm. you know, the death camp. 
And he went to, well, okay, what is the meaning of man? What is our anthropology? Genesis 1, 26, 1, 27, male and female, he created them. Well, that's important, he says. So I'm going to start there. But what, what prompted him, what inspired him was one of the worst atrocities in our history. Mm-hmm. You know, and what's the passage from Romans 5, 20, where sin arises, grace abounds all the more, that we can say daringly so that theology of the body comes from the ashes of Auschwitz in a manner of speaking. That's extraordinary to think about. Um, and I think Ivan, you and I had talked about a few months ago how uh, John Paul II was ready to put this down. He was ready to put the whole study down which again, first started with his philosophical work, Love and Responsibility, but he was named Cardinal during Vatican II, which meant he moved up mm-hmm. some tables, and there he met the very famous French theologian who our listeners have heard me quote before, Henri de Lubac, and Henri de Lubac had heard him or had read his Love and Responsibility, amazingly so, and encouraged him to stick with it. Yeah. So if he was not named Cardinal, we don't know if he would have ever really put love and responsibility out there within the context of theology of the body. So it's interesting how God works in history, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you, you used the word, or, or at least alluded to it, integration, Joe. That's what it was for me. As I, as I listened to these tapes and then followed with the notes, I thought, our sexuality is, is everywhere, um, mm-hmm. as it is in our society. Yes. I mean, everywhere you look, we are, we are over-sexualized to the nth degree, but if we look at it the way that John Paul the Great wants us to, we're going to see that, yes, our sexuality is everywhere because it's stamped in our very being mm-hmm. from, you know, from the beginning, from Amen. our very origins. And that's what's just so exciting to me is to see that as part of our day-to-day, uh, like you said, what is this guy talking about? Sex <laughs> and the Catholic Church, they don't go together. Well, <laughs> they go together better than... Anything we can imagine because yeah. of the mystery. Well, even more shocking, what is this Pope talking about sex? <laughs> you could expect that from Mary Keppel, but yeah. Pope, yeah. And he right. spoke more beautifully than anybody else yeah. about it. A- amen. And Chris, as it relates to this hypersexualization of culture, I think this really um, is where we should uh, depart for our beginning treatment of chapter two. Okay, so the last three weeks we've been talking about encountering God who is love. Well, the, cha- the title of chapter two for Christopher West's work, uh, The Love That Satisfies, is distinguishing true love from its counterfeits. We can never reinforce this point enough, I think, guys, that, you know, the devil, uh, literally you translate that diabolos in the Greek, to scatter. You know, you, you break the word down even more so, it's, it's to throw something in the middle of the road. So he wants to confuse, literally again, Satan means to, to confuse. And there isn't one thing that he has spent more time confusing than our sexuality. We go to the Garden of Eden. You already talked about the fruits and snakes, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Satan, the snake was what? Subtle. In the Hebrew, the translation of that is the exploitation of nakedness. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we have to uh, draw back, I think, guys, and we we have to reestablish what this is all about. It's interesting, as as a culture, when I I hear the word counterfeit, I mean, what do you think of? I I think of counterfeit money. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go to the grocery store today and actually pay cash, we don't do that anymore. We don't go to the grocery <laughs> store and actually pay cash. I did that recently, and they took the 20 and they scanned it. <laughs> I thought, what are you doing? You're scanning the 20. And I looked yeah. over, and they had these scanners, and they were scanning the money because why? You know, they yeah. were seeing if it was counterfeit. Mm-hmm. And I got to thinking, you know, guys, <laughs> we will go out of our way to find out if money is counterfeit. Justifiably so. I mean, there's integrity in that. But are we going out of our way to examine love's counterfeit ways? Which has more value. 
Yes, yes. To our, to our overall happiness, uh, without question. Amen. And I mean, in, in light of that, you think about you know, what lies at the heart of the gospel. What lies at the heart of the gospel is that Sermon on the Mount, where we have really within that Sermon, the Sermon on Trust, where Christ is telling us not to be preoccupied, not to be anxious, not to worry. But what really strikes me in that study is when you translate mam, and we just translate it as wealth or riches, but the Hebrew itself best translates as trusting money. So literally translated, when mammon is used, it's trusting money. We are consumed and over-consumed with the way in which we lean upon money. And that's our challenge. Do we lean upon God's love the same way we lean upon money? I mean, do we moonlight about God's passionate love for us at the same way that we moonlight about money and all the things that money can, can buy? Um, so this is our challenge. And so in many ways, that challenge is put before us as we begin to engage chapter two. And again, before you read this excerpt here, this quote, Ivan, just a note to our listening audience, uh, a reminder that Christopher West is reflecting upon various paragraphs throughout the first half of Benedict's work, God is Love, Deus Caritas Est. Uh, so when we read uh, quotes, we'll call them excerpts or quotes, either one, but they are again uh, reflections of Benedict's work, God is Love. So the quote goes like this, In the law between men and women, human beings glimpse an apparently irresistible promise of happiness. Mm. I was reading this last night and I was so excited about this quote I shared with my roommate. And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, glimpse what? Mm. And I said, well, I had to read it to him three times before he got it. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to figure out another way to say it. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. quote itself says, In the law between man and woman, human beings glimpse an apparently irresistible promise of happiness. And what I think that means is, is that in this relationship between a man and a woman, it seems to offer us an irresistible promise for happiness. Mm-hmm. The question becomes, do we do wrong in trying to find happiness in this relationship mm-hmm. of a mm-hmm. man and a woman? And as we talked earlier, we cannot separate God's love from our own Eros mm-hmm. relationship. So the answer would be not necessarily. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily do anything wrong with one happiness because this is part of God's plan. And every time we do what God wants us to be, we will be happy. And so what we need to do, according to theology of the body, is bring this agape, this God-like love, this self-forgetful kind of love mm-hmm. that God has for us and bring it to our arrows, our relationship between man and woman. And so then we'll experience the kind of happiness and, and joy that it was meant to be. Amen. And one of the things, Ivan, that John Paul II does for us is, you know, he asks the question, and, and it's a very important question, was this the original intention of God? You know, we have that great passage from the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's, uh, what, Matthew 19, 8. Uh, what do we read here? For, uh, this is our Lord's words. Uh, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And as Christopher West notes, um, you know, this isn't the way God created it to be. You know, something has gone terribly wrong. And what, again, drives John Paul II's vision of man and understanding of man is this relationship between sin and grace. It's interesting, guys. We think about John Paul II's series of Wednesday audiences, and we think about Theology of the Body. But right after Theology of the Body, he did a series on the Catechism, and he spent his first 20 weeks talking about what? Sin! 
sin because he understood that if we don't have a proper understanding of sin, we will then not have a proper understanding of grace. And if we don't have a proper understanding of grace, well, where do we go? And so here, Christopher West highlights, and it's so important, what is sin? And highlighting here, uh, paragraph 1607 from the Catechism, as it notes that the disorder we notice you know, so painfully in the male-female relationship does not actually stem from the nature of man and woman, nor from the nature of the relations, but from sin. As a break with God, the first sin had for its consequence the rupture of the original communion between man and woman. Uh, That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus came to restore creation to the purity of its origins. This is why, if you were to go to the Catechism, paragraph 1615, it notes, following Christ, renouncing themselves, and taking up their crosses, spouses will be able to receive that original meaning of marriage and live it out with the help of Christ. This is not some abstract idealism here, guys, but a divine promise. It's posed in the, uh, the middle school program. If you are wanting to tear mankind down, if that is your aim, which of course is Satan's aim, what do you attack? Mm-hmm. And it's very clearly stated that what you attack is the relationship, who, who is man for woman and who will woman be for man. Mm-hmm. If you can get at that, you are going to tear down the very fabric of what makes us who we are and who we're called to be yeah. by our designer. Amen. And this is why the Catechism highlights we need to discover the purity of Christ. And mm-hmm. When we talk about purity, this is so important. <laughs> the biblical vision to pure, purity is always seen in contrast to sin. You know, sin is dirty, right? The, the, the translation, you go to the purity, the Latin and even the Greek, it's purity, clean. You know, purity makes us clean. It restores our image in Christ. When I went to that conference uh, of the LU of the Body, Damon Owens, I remember he said, there was another way to experience this sexual attraction uh, that we have between the sexes, you know, man towards woman, woman mm-hmm. towards man. And, I, and yet I just couldn't grasp that right away because I thought, I know that if I go to the beach or if I go anywhere else and a woman is dressed immodestly, it would be so hard for me to see her any other way. Mm-hmm. At least at that time, that's how I felt. And the idea of having this sacred view, putting on the Gilead of the body lenses mm-hmm. and being able to see as God sees, that never crossed my mind that that was possible. Mm. But that's where John Paul II is saying, Christ can hit here to restore creation to the purity of its origins. Yes, yes. Yes, and being downtown at Notre Dame School, I see a lot of scantily clad women, very beautiful, physically attractive women. But when I see them, I sometimes think, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that yep. is for yep. your spouse, your other that you are seeking. But it's not for me. You're revealing so much of yourself that you're telling a lie. Okay, Our bodies can speak a lie. Mm-hmm. And that forever language that we see, when we see a woman as a, as a man, we see a woman revealing too much of herself, we think, wow, she, she wants something lasting with me, and mm-hmm. that's not the case. It's yeah. very passing. It's yeah. here today and gone tomorrow. Well, and that's the emptiness, I think, Chris, we talked about a few weeks ago that lies on the other side of eros without agape. Right? Yes. You know, and that's why modesty is so important. <clears throat> and I know Ivan, you and I mm-hmm. spent a whole program talking about that. And it boils down to, are we going to dress modestly, inviting the opposite sex to love us for who we are as created in the image and likeness of God? Or 
are we going to dress immodestly, where we invite uh, lust, where we invite the opposite sex to look at us just for our sexual values and not for who we are as created in the image and likeness of God? This is the tension that we create. Okay, I mean, we have a power. Both sexes have a power. If we are going to acquiesce to our sexual urge in season and out of season, all we're doing is inviting the opposite sex to lust. And one of the, the uh, highlights in this chapter uh, Christopher West makes is women are called to be the um, boundary makers. Mm-hmm. When it comes to these types of issues, women have always been the boundary makers. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a, to a certain extent, men will go as far as women let them. And what I see in our society is is really glaring. I mean, even in my own lifetime is those boundaries have dropped so far now that women are becoming partakers mm-hmm. in this in enormous lack of purity. They are becoming partakers in it instead of trying to to be you know beacons of it or guardians of it. Yeah, he, he gives an ex- Christopher West gives an example <clears throat> here as you're talking there, yes. and I think this is an excellent example. It has us moving in number nine, but that's okay. Um, where he says, I I often ask my female students, how many of you want to marry a man who cannot say no to sex? You know, he says, notice I don't ask the men if they want to marry women who cannot say no to sex. For whatever reason, women seem to recognize this truth more readily. Never has a woman raised her hand. Women know intuitively that if a man cannot say no to sex, his yes means nothing. Nothing. And that is striking because ultimately this really does highlight the essence of everything that Benedict XVI talks about, everything that John Paul II's vision is about, and ultimately Christopher West wants to draw out here is that relationship between eros and agape. If you kick out agape, then what do you have? (laughs) What do you have? And, you know, on this topic, guys, of the original meaning of man, I think there's a very provocative reflection that he has about what takes place at the wedding feast at Cana. As we know, and I think many of our listeners know, guys, you know, what happened at the wedding feast at Cana? Well, this, of course, is where... Jesus arrives on the scene and performs his first miracle. And what was it? The newly married couple at Cana had run out of wine, and he restores that wine in super abundance. And Christopher West then reflects upon that reality and says this, Wine is a biblical symbol of God's love poured out for us. In the beginning, before sin, man and women were inebriated with God's love. Divine love flowed from them and between them like rich, full-bodied wine. Since the dawn of sin, however, we have all run out of wine. On our own, we don't have what it takes to love each other in a way that corresponds with our heart's true desire. And so the man-woman relationship offers an irresistible promise of happiness, but lacking God's wine, it cannot deliver. Guys, this is why. In the miracle at the wedding feast at Cana, we have cause for rejoicing because Christ came to restore the wine to overflowing in man and women's relationship so as to infuse that eros with agape, that we would drink deeply from this new wine and find ourselves empowered to love as we are called to love. And Christopher West makes a point to talk about marriage and the Eucharist together in Theology of the Body. When I walk downtown uh, near Chico State, I'm sometimes reminded of his words. You know what college kids, what high school kids, what all of these kids that are, you know, they're, they're searching for something. They're seeking something that's very deeply within them. What is it? Is it to get drunk and, 
you know, have a one night stand? Mm-hmm. No, that's the twisted version of it. Yes. It's marriage in the Eucharist, the wine of what you're talking about so beautifully here, Joe, the wine of the Eucharist, and of course, marriage, which is the sacramental pointing of our bodies to God. Mm-hmm. When we come together, that is a sacrament. You know, guys, just by way of footnote here, for, for John the Evangelist, he's doing something here. In John 2, we have this first miracle performed in Cana, where wine's involved. Well, okay, let's fast forward to John 6. Uh, what's involved in, in, in that miracle? But bread, mm-hmm. okay? Wine and bread are what, guys? Mm-hmm. Right? Does this not point, of course, to the sacrament of the Eucharist? And for John, it, it clearly does. And he wants us to see this. And at the same time, and I know this is maybe a tough image to wrap our head around, but he also wants to see how marriage ought to be lived out in light of the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. how marriage ought to be lived out in light of man laying his life down, like Christ laid his life down for the church. Yeah. Yeah. Wives, submit to your husbands. Better translated, Wives, let your husbands serve you as Christ serves the church and lays his life down for the church. This is the kind of thing that ought to grip us. And I know this is unconventional thinking for some of us. I mean, some of our listeners might be thinking, what, what, what? Yes. Let your wife do what? You know, what, what are you saying? Well, what I'm saying is what John wants us to see, that if we can begin to see that men, our vocation is rooted in uh, Christ's sacrificial off- offering, we will quickly discover that agape, that divine sacrificial love, infuses eros, that human and erotic love, with just not that life-giving power that we see in babies, but that life-giving power that is eternal in the joy that we receive when we are living in Christ. You know, just a week ago, uh, in, sometimes uh, in the Newman Center, we get students who are not Catholic. But last week, there was a student who was not Catholic who helped me to set up for Mass. And I invited him to, to join me so I can explain to him what we do in there. And he was very open to do that. Mm. And so he asked me, and I said, you know, everything that we do at Mass from the liturgy to every single prayer and, and uh, ritual is meant to lead us to this one moment, this one climax, which we call Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And every time that we eat this bread, it's like the consummation of a marriage. Mm-hmm. We become one with Jesus. He enters into our very body and we become one with him. Mm-hmm. So you can think of Mass as a wedding, as a big mm-hmm. feast in which the Lamb gives down his life for his bride, us. And so ever since before the Reformation, the Eucharist has always been the center of the Mass, not the sermon, not the music, mm-hmm. not the fellowship, the Eucharist. Why? Because it's the way that we, until Christ comes back, is the way that we become one with Him, in the same way that a man and woman become one in this relationship, sexual union. Amen. And you know, Ivan, one of the things that strikes me when you're talking is, I mean, if we are going to be honest with ourselves as men, and for our listeners out there, and for some women as well, I mean, I don't want to reduce this to just men, how often... Are we in the mindset that whatever I'm going to do, it all points to tonight at 11 p.m. or 12 p.m.? <laughs> yes. The consummation, right? And so if we were to shift, as you were just saying, if we were to shift that mindset as it relates to the Eucharist, because what is the Eucharist? I mean, when we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, we are entering into this nuptial union with Christ so profound, so deep. And this is our lasting joy. This is why that conjugal act that physical consummation is what it is in its joy, in its bliss, because we are experiencing physically something that rightfully belongs to God. 
And that contemplation, Joe, was one of the several times that I pulled off of the highway (laughs) because that was groundbreaking for me. Yeah, Chris, I think for you and for all of us who, who hear this for the first time, I'm looking up at the clock, guys. We are out of time. Thank you for the gift of your time. Let us let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.